Hey you, thanks for being a valued listener of Remedial Herstory. Please consider subscribing so we can keep bringing you content. I wanted to let you know about a few things we offer beyond the podcast. If you love what we're talking about here, then you are going to love the Remedial Herstory Master's Classes we have linked in the show notes and on our website. We have three courses, one on pedagogy, U.S. history, and world history, and of course, talking about women in all of those contexts. We also have an annual Summer Educators Retreat, which is in person. Details about that are on our website. Our website is also packed with learning materials, including articles for every era of U.S. and world history that we built with a collaboration of over 20 historians. We also have lesson plans for elementary, middle, and high school that involve analysis of primary source material and get students doing history. We also have a video series that goes along with that. All of this is only possible because of the generous contributions from our patrons. You can also support Remedial Herstory at remedialherstory.com giving or by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash remedialherstory. Thanks for helping us make history. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about women in the second great awakening. Oh, okay. Let's get into it. Sounds good. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Brooke, second great awakening. That means there was a first. Didn't know that. Yeah, now you know. <laughs> uh, happened in the colonial period, kind of like trying to bring people into the church, right? Oh, and like, gotcha. you know, a lot of bringing the church to them in rural areas. And that happened in the colonial period. And the second one uh, happens in the sort of antebellum period in okay. early, early you know, U.S. Republic period. Like and the people go west. Yeah. I got it. And okay. um, this is happening in, again, like kind of the rural areas, right? Like bringing God to them and trying to convert, you know, people over. But a lot of that sort of like m- those attempts at mass conversion are, you, you have to be really charismatic, right? Yeah. To like, con- so there's all these really interesting like charismatic figures that, that come out of that. So I'm really excited to hear from our guest today. Um, but today we're actually, this episode, um, the interview was done by one of our board members, <gasps> Rachel Perez. Yes, thank and you, Rachel. She um, is, if you haven't checked it out, she is the host of the podcast Hashtag History. So if, Which you, is amazing. if you don't don't follow along with her podcast. Definitely, definitely check it out. She's been a guest on our podcast um, to talk about Anita Hill before. So Rachel, this is her debut as a guest interviewer for us. And <laughs> she had the chance to sit down with Leslie Pellin. And Brooke, you want to tell us a little bit about... Yeah, Leslie Pellin is a um, faculty member at and teaches history courses at Portsville College, Porterville, excuse me, Porterville College. And she has her master's in history. She is from Porterville, originally grew up there. She has a husband and two kiddos. Kind of gone back and forth between Utah and Maine, went to Brigham and Young. So she's pretty impressive. And she's talking to us about yeah, the faith. second awakening. Yeah, and, and women's role in that. So let's give her a chance to introduce herself to our audience and hang on to your hats, people. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Let's get into this. 
I am Leslie Pilon. I am a professor of history at Porterville Community College in the Central Valley of California. I like to say that our little town is not LA, not San Francisco. We're the part nobody thinks or talks about. Uh, it's Grapes of Wrath meets Cesar Chavez, who marched through our little community uh, wow. on his great march. So um, that's where I teach. It's also where I'm from. I grew up here, uh, graduated from local schools, and then I went to BYU, Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, where I got my bachelor's degree in uh, history and English literature. While I was there, I met and married my husband and supported him through pharmacy school and had babies. And then I got my master's degree from Southern New Hampshire University in history. And my thesis uh, was called uh, The Weaker Vessel Speaks. Uh, and it was a study of women preachers of the Second Great Awakening. Um, and then I just came back home and I've been uh, working in the school system here and got hired full time at Portable College last semester. So. That's, That's great. Me. It's so nice to meet you. And it's so nice to have you on the podcast. That was a perfect segue into what I want to ask you next. So of course, I have this list of questions that I want to ask you. But before we jump into them, can you generally speak to the topic that we are talking about today? What yeah. is uh, this, you know, maybe a couple points about the Second Great Awakening, why it was important, and specifically women's contributions to it? Yes. So um, my specialty is American religious history, but mostly what we're talking about today is female preachers during the Second Great Awakening. And I always like to tell my students that kind of a thread through U.S. history is that um, people in the United States have always been religious, but every once in a while they go through these phases where they get super wackadoodle religious. Mm -hmm. um, and we call these awakenings, right? And the first great awakening uh, happens in the late colonial period. This is where you're going to get Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams. But what I really like to focus on is the second great awakening. And that usually is considered to start around 1820. And it goes through uh, the late 1840s. And this is where you're going to see groups like the Mormons are going to be established during this period. Mm. You're going to get Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Shakers, the Oneida, um, these groups that we're all more familiar with. But what's really interesting about this period for me is that it kind of coincides with the entire idea of Republican motherhood, which if you're familiar with that, it's this idea that during the early Republic, there was this idea that we needed women to be well-educated mm -hmm. and active within the moral framework so that they could raise up the next generation mm -hmm. of good citizens and good mm -hmm. Republicans. And this opened this situation where there started to be a blurred line about what is an appropriate place for women to be involved and where isn't. Um, and a huge part of the Second Great Awakening was it was this idea that people could get individual revelation from God. And so you have individual revelation and then, well, wait, if everyone can get individual revelation, does that mean everyone can speak? Interesting. Um, because it was appropriate for women to write. Sure. Um, 
you know, documents and things, you know, we have you know, records from Abigail Adams and um, Phyllis Wheatley and all these people who are writing to advocate for things, but to speak in what was called a promiscuous, which at the time promiscuous meant mixed gender audience. Um, to do that was really inappropriate for women. But all of a sudden this change in the religion, you have these women who are going, no, no, God has called me to speak. I'm going to go and I'm going to preach. And they're in this really interesting conundrum where you'd expect that these same women who are like, no, it's my right to preach would also be on the front lines of mm. the women's suffrage movement because Seneca Falls is coming up soon. Yep. And that's, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Right. When I start my research, that was what I was expecting. And then it turns mm -hmm. out most of them are not. Um, they are. And I like to call them radical conservatives within their own little section. They are pushing the boundaries and everything. And yet they are not pro Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Really? They are still like. They're not pro her or they're not pro the women's suffrage movement. They're not pro suffrage. They still, they want to have a voice within things that they consider their sphere. Mm. And I think it's really important. And the reason I think this is so important um, to talk about, and I wish we explored it more, mm -hmm. was because we have this binary in our study of women. You have either Gloria Steinem or Phyllis Schlafly. You have either Elizabeth Cady Stanton or some unknown woman who just stayed home and made babies. Mm -hmm. There has always been a place, though, in the middle. And, you know, I'm no longer religious, but I grew up in a very, you know, traditional religious culture. And that was something that a lot of women kind of have to navigate. And I grew Absolutely. up navigating that. And mm -hmm. these women did it in real time and in a very public way. And I just found that fascinating. That is fascinating. And I think even modern day too, I know that I, growing up religious as well, that there are a lot of in interpretations of the Bible of whether women are allowed to speak, whether women are allowed to be preachers and pastors. And so during the Second Great Awakening, is it more so that they are finding their place in a sense, but aren't going to the level of, okay, now I'm going to lead this congregation? Yes. So that okay. is a huge, there's more of them. And, and then it's the idea of, can I testify in my own congregation, which was more acceptable? Right. It was more acceptable for women and especially the Quakers did a lot of trailblazing with this. Um, and I mean, and you have the Shakers who they're kind of an outlier because their leader is Ann Lee. And um, but even in other congregations, you'll have testimony meetings where women within the congregation will give up, get up and testify. Um, but what these women and there's about 300 of them that we have uh, that actually show up in these religious newspapers. Wow. Um, they're not just doing that. They are actually going on the road and traveling with these other preachers and doing these stump speeches. And what I think is so fascinating is that they are kind of the original. They make it okay to do this so that later Sarah and Angelina Grimke are going to be doing the same thing, but for political issues. And they're okay. kind of more acceptable because these women, and it's like, well, abolition is a moral issue. Therefore, as a woman, I can advocate for mm. it. 
and I can speak publicly because these preachers, these women preachers were doing this. You all were celebrating them. Uh, so why is this different? Mm-hmm. And that's what I just hearing from you. I, I shared with you before recording that I am fairly uh, ignorant and blind when it comes to this topic. I don't know much, but I do having heard from you the time period that we're talking about here. I imagine many of the topics that these women are covering are things like slavery and maybe even touching on the temperance movement. Yes. Um, temperance is an issue for them. Um, they are much more likely to be discussing, um, abolition rather than temperance. Most of these women are Northerners. Um, there are a few Southerners who are going to kind of get into the whole slavery apology, you know, biblical apologists for slavery. Um, they're not as many of them. Just Southern society was less okay with all that. Mm-hmm. But you also have a bunch of them who get very active into advocating for the rights of uh, Native peoples. One of my favorites, and she's actually my favorite hands down. Her name's Harriet Livermore. And she's one of my favorites. She actually uh, testified, or so Washington, D.C., right, uh, mm-hmm. was still kind of a hick town and they didn't have their own churches built. And so on Sunday, they would all go to the Capitol building and visiting preachers would speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And she actually uh, gave a sermon to in the Capitol building to all of Washington, D.C. sometime in January of 1827. Um, So many people came to see her that when President John Quincy Adams shows up, uh, there's no seats and he has to sit at her feet on the like steps to the speakers thing. But she talked about her whole sermon was about justice and how wow. the leaders of a country need to be just. She also spent time living with the Choctaw and the Cherokee after they had been forced along the trail of tears mm-hmm. um, and advocated for them. A lot. Uh, It caused so many problems that the uh, federal uh, employees who were in charge of the new reservation actually kicked her out. Wow. (laughs) She couldn't come back. Um, So they're they're interested in all of these issues and they spend a lot of time having to justify that they're even talking. So you already shared why you think this is an important topic for the classroom, for students to learn, Mm -hmm. Um, to kind of help out our teachers. We have a lot of teachers that listen to this podcast. What sources do you have to share with teachers that they could utilize in the classroom? How would they guide their students through this topic? Right. So one of the biggest things that we have with these women that they show up the most is in uh, religious periodicals, which Mm -hmm. there are a ton of them from this time period. The issue is they're sometimes hard to access because they have like these random short runs. And so nobody wants to invest the money to digitize them. Okay. Um, But there are some I've got uh, one is the one that's my favorite is uh, the Arkansas advocate. There is actually a, in 1832 article that talks about Harriet Livermore going to the Choctaw. Um, So that's a great one. Um, and then there, Harriet Livermore, actually, we have in uh, James Madison's papers, a letter that oh, she wow. wrote to him, uh, basically telling him to advocate for the abolition of slavery. And then the other kind of sources that we have is that a lot of different 
women end up publishing their letters and their journals and experiences. Um, Two of the really good ones are uh, Nancy Towell. She publishes hers and you can access these for free, either on Google or archive. Um, But Nancy Towell publishes her experience. That one's really cool because she actually goes to Europe to preach. And at one point she ends up going to Nauvoo and meeting with Joseph Smith. And it's fun to do a compare and contrast because Joseph Smith and his followers also wrote their experience with her. Mm. And so pulling them and comparing contrasting because um, you can find Smith's on the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, Nancy Towell's like, he wanted me to be his wife and he's totally weird and really pushy. <laughs> and I thought they were going to beat me up. And Joseph Smith's like, oh, she was this horribly preachy woman and really like awful and cranky. Sure. Just wanted her out. And I'm like, okay, we're somewhere in the middle here, I bet. Like, I, I don't think either one of you were playing. Um, That's great. Which, so that one, especially if you can pull those up and print them out and you have to do a little bit of preparing your students because these mm-hmm. are very biblical heavy. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of preface that and be like, listen, they're going to be referencing scripture and you're going to have to maybe explain some of those illusions that they make. But having that a compare and contrast with someone like Joseph Smith meeting this woman and like is really cool. And that you is learn really a lot. Neat. And it's a great way to actually kind of study um perspective and bias mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. evaluating, like, okay, this is why we need more than one source. <laughs> Definitely. I was going to ask you, you you kind of touched on it perfectly already, but how do you, since this is such a religious heavy topic, how do you preface this? Because I think for people that have grown up religious, there are terms and phrases that you probably understand that are totally foreign to people that didn't grow up in church. So how do you approach that? Um, I approach it when I tell my students, I'm like, okay, guys, for some of you, this is going to be familiar. For some of you, this isn't. I'm going to teach it like we are in a three-year-old Sunday school where (laughs) every word has to get explained. Mm -hmm. And I think I have a little bit of a benefit in the sense that so much of my religious upbringing was centered around missionary work. Um, Mm. And so I have that in, but if you think about it, you know, I'm always telling my students, okay, explain it to me. Like I'm a five-year-old and you kind of have to take that approach with these probably because I'm a literature person, but I have no problem where it's like, okay, let's actually pull out the Bible verse that they're looking at. Like, what are they talking about? So that's the biggest thing. And then not being afraid of the discomfort. I think we so often uh, within our modern, more secular uh, American society get, you know, don't talk about politics or religion, right? And especially in U.S. history, I've seen this move away from talking about the religious aspects. And I think that that does a disadvantage because so much has been motivated by that. Even our, the way we speak and the cadence of our political speeches to this day are, you can, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm reading sermons. Like it's mm. all developed that way. Um, so that's a big thing. And then the other thing that I really encourage and caution is to make sure that when you're teaching this and you really preface to your students that we have to take their beliefs at face value. Mm. Not so much that we have to subscribe to those beliefs, 
beliefs, but we have to believe that they believed it unless you can prove otherwise. And that's one of the things. And one of the reasons I love religious history is because it's like, wow, they believed that. Yeah. Genuinely, honestly, and, and sincerely, of course they acted the way they did. Like if you genuinely, honestly believed this doctrine, you're going to behave this way. And even though it doesn't excuse behavior, you can comprehend it. And I think that that's just something to also kind of get in that headspace as you're teaching this. I think something that you said is really important too, is although, you know, our foundation as a country is built on the separation of church and state, something you kind of mentioned early on is there are these moments of awakenings and revivals and returns to, uh, you know, more biblical teachings. And those do have a heavy uh, impact on politics at the time and reform and the types of movements that you're seeing politically in the country coinciding exactly with these religious movements. Yeah. And, and women for so long in U.S. history, the place that we had power was in the church. Mm. I mean, there's this beautiful kind of saying within a lot of African-American church communities that like the women are the backbone of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the highest attendance. They are the ones and they're able to, because it's a safe place to exercise that power. And that's the thing is that it was very acceptable for preachers' wives to go along with them and help them. It was very acceptable for there to be like a women's auxiliary and all that stuff. But these women that I love spending all my time with, they took it like one step farther. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, ooh, you go, girl, like push, push. But also accepting the fact and understanding why they didn't go the next step. That is really fascinating to me. Of course, to me, that's the next logical step. It's like, cool, I got some power within this these four corners. Now let me break down the walls and right. keep pushing that power. Yes. And they, one, are within a biblical framework, but also you hear them saying over and over again, look what happens, though, to these mm-hmm. men who push into that framework. They're so focused on the power and the what can I get for myself that they move away from the issues and they get corrupted. If I stay here where it's just my moral sphere, I can stay true to the cause. Mm-hmm. And the cause is justice in that mm-hmm. sense. And so it's a really interesting understanding of, and you see this too. I mean, I mean, I remember a boss at one point telling me, oh, I can pay you less to work from home so you're not corrupted by the male workforce, right? Oh, um, yeah, that was special. Oh. Um, and so, you, but you can get, but see these women, they actually, they're like, no, if I get involved in politics, politics is dirty. Politics is messy. I can do the most good if I stay here mm-hmm. on moral issues that they don't see as political. Mm-hmm. We see it as a cognitive dissonance, but it made total sense to them. Would you say that that's the overarching theme or idea that people should understand about this event? And if I, not, what else have we not touched on yet that are the the big things that people should understand about the Second Great Awakening and women's involvement? Well, I think the biggest thing from the Second Great Awakening and in general was that you have a whole bunch of people who are trying to figure they're they're not happy for whatever reason and they're trying 
all these new things by hearkening back to old things. And they get really radical. It's really interesting because when we think about radical religious sects that are like super out there, progressive, pushing the boundaries of everything, nowadays we do not think about the Mormons and the Seventh day Adventists. No. But back when they were founded, they were exceptionally radical. And these women were, and I think it's important for us to consider that as a, why the Second Great Awakening is important is because it's an obvious connection that we can see that. But also looking as we deal with history and we're in this place right now as a society where we're kind of reevaluating our history. Um, and, you know, who are the heroes? Who are the villains? Mm-hmm. I think it's an important theme to take from the Second Great Awakening that things that maybe now are not seen as ra- were radical. Mm-hmm. And again, we never excuse behavior, but to contextualize and understand it and understand mm-hmm. that, wow, for this time, they were asking a lot. It gives a better nuance. And then you have less, I think, bitterness and anger. Definitely. I really appreciate that perspective. Um, that helps open my eyes. Because like I said, I I see it as like, why didn't you push the boundaries a little bit more? But what you're reiterating is they were pushing boundaries. They were stepping outside of their roles. They were being radical for their time period and and for their, their circumstance. They were being incredibly radical. Yes, exactly. And and I think, you know, we want them to go the step farther. We want them to be Elizabeth Cady Stanton. We want right. them to be Lucretia Mott. And there were Lucretia Motts and 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 all of that time. But I feel like we want everybody to be all like you can't, you're not part of the movement if you're not all in. And I think that that is an important part of including Mm -hmm. women in the story. You know, they're not, they're very nuanced and everyone's at different steps and places and that they all contributed to what it means to be a woman in the United States. Um, I really love that. So, yeah. I, I love that. That's why I love w- religious history, um, and mm. especially in the United States. I mean, and then there's the whole debate of are we going through a secularism or are we actually in a new great awakening now? Right. Like, which that gets into Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter <laughs> being a religion, but that's a whole other podcast. I was going to say that that sounds like something I, I mean, I would love to hear more about that, but that's a whole another hour. Yes. Um, so you've already shared some resources for teachers. So perhaps these are some of the same, but there's some overlap, but what primary evidence did you use to more deeply understand the the issues that you covered? Yeah. So um, again, it's going to be a lot of religious stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I'm reading, I read a lot of these religious periodicals, the Christian Palladium and then the Advent Herald. Uh, Christian Palladium is a little more difficult to get a hold of because you'll have like random places in different libraries. If you are on the East Coast and you go to your state historical society or even your more local, odds are they're going to have these Mm. in their files and microfiche. Mm. Just no one's paying to digitize them. But those are great. And then also, I just love actually reading these women's words when they publish and it's a lot of sermons (laughs) and it's a lot of um, travel narratives and I went here and they treated me thus and I went here and they tried to pull my skirt up because they thought no way a woman could actually be talking this well. Uh, That's Nancy Towell, by the way, who mm, she's, she's fierce. She's vicious. Mm. Uh, But that's really a place where I go to actually get in the minds of these women. When it comes to getting into the minds of the movement, you got to really study um, 
Joseph Smith, you got to, the Shakers um, are huge. And then, you know, some of these other big revivalists, the men that these women are traveling alongside, uh, what are they saying and, and what's happening with these women? Uh, what are these women hearing and what are they building on to? So anything that's happening in the burned over district in New York uh, from basically 1820 to 1840, um, the Millerites are always fun because a lot of these women are Millerites and which is Millerites is they're the guys who predicted when the world would end and then it didn't happen okay. twice. Uh, <laughs> it's called the great disappointment, but, mm-hmm. you know, understanding those things are just really important to understanding the context of these women. This was amazing. Thank you so much for massively educating me on something I didn't know anything about really, and just providing a lot of perspective and the amazing reminder that women don't have to be at the forefront of political society to be making a big difference. Um, I think that was really important reminder. And I'm I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk and I got to learn all of this. Before I let you go, is there anything else that we may have missed that you wanted to share, something that we didn't touch on? No, just I hope that even if you just go out and look at one of these women, um, again, Harriet Livermore and Nancy Towell are my favorites. But thank you. Yeah. Shout out some women's names for people to do some research. Right. And if you don't want to dig through primary sources, the incredible Dr. Catherine Breckis is the champion of this field. And she has several articles and books that are just incredible um, to look at and kind of just to learn more. Uh, Anything by Catherine Breckis is a great secondary source into this topic. Awesome. Thank you so much, Leslie. This was so nice. It was so great to meet you. It was great to hang out with you too. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.